Hello and welcome to Pipettes and Politics, your science policy podcast. Today it's only me, Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Daniel and Andre, our usual uh, co-hosts, are off on assignment doing other things. So um, today we have an exciting uh, episode where we will be uh, running our interview with AAAS President and CEO Rush Holt, and also he's a former member of Congress. Um, Rush and I met um, just a few weeks ago and had a really interesting conversation about scientists running for office and holding public office, which has been a really big trend this year. Uh, during the primary season, um, uh, several scientists have chosen to run for public office and get involved in public service careers. And um, I, I think Rush had some really interesting perspectives on what that's like and what the differences are between working for the government and working as an elected official and working as a scientist. So we're going to run that interview in just a few minutes. We do want to give you um, some updates on the policy issues that are happening um, or being discussed right now. It is August. It is a bit of a quiet time here in Washington as uh, the House of Representatives is on recess. The Senate has been on recess and may be going back into recess, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but it's a little bit quieter, so we're going to do a quick hit of some of the top-level things that are happening right now and then go right into the interview um, with Rush Holt. So first, from a policy perspective and an appropriations perspective, the Senate is supposed to be taking up the Labor, Health, and Human Services Appropriations Bill with, it's supposed to be partnered with, the Department of Defense Appropriations Bill. And this is a unique way in which a controversial bill like the Labor HHS appropriation, which has included in it um, NIH funding, but also lots of social service funding issues, um, issues that tend to be very partisan and tend to hold up that bill from moving forward in the legislative process, attached with a bill, the defense spending bill, which generally speaking passes with huge bipartisan support. It was really a, an interesting way to move for the Senate to move appropriations bills forward. Um, that bill was supposed to come to the floor for debate this week as the Senate returns from its uh, shortened recess period. Um, however, that date appears to be slipping. Um, originally, the bill was supposed to be introduced um, perhaps uh, August 15th. That's not happening. It's likely to or potentially going to be done on Monday, which would be... August 20th, but even that date is potentially slipping as well. So um, our confidence about how this process is going to move forward is wavering a little bit. The Senate still does want to pass appropriations bills, and this the defense bill uh, is one that is going to pass, and so attaching labor aid to it is a really good idea. But really good ideas and policymaking don't always mix. So we're going to continue to monitor this. We are still hopeful and positive and optimistic in thinking that the NIH is on course for an increase, for another sizable increase, which would be terrific. Um, but the timing is slipping a little bit, and frankly, we're running out of time. It is uh, halfway through August. The fiscal year ends in a month and a half, so that's six weeks. Um, a lot of work still needs to happen in those six weeks, so we'll continue to monitor that. Outside of the legislative process, there were a few OSTP news-related items that we wanted to address, the first being the uh, White House's soft rollout, I guess is what we'll call it, of their nominee for the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. That nominee is said to be Dr. Kelvin Drogmeyer. 
Dr. Drogmeyer is the Vice President for Research at the University of Oklahoma and has been there since 1985. He has served... Uh, two terms and was the vice chairman of the National Science Board, which oversees the National Science Foundation during both the Bush and Obama administrations. Um, and he served as a board member for the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities. Um, he is currently Oklahoma's Secretary for Science and Technology. Um, he is, for all intents and purposes, a good nominee for this position. He certainly has a wonderful track record. He has bipartisan support. And we were happy to hear that the White House finally be putting a little bit of attention into who's running the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, maybe with his uh, eventual nomination and hopeful um, confirmation by the Senate, we will have someone uh, in the president's cabinet, or at least uh, in the conversation there, bringing science-based and evidence-based policy thought processes um, to the White House as they're making decisions. So we're excited about that. I said it was a soft rollout because there hasn't been a formal, you know, the president standing up and saying that this is the person that he wants. Um, news kind of just leaked out. It just kind of was suddenly in the ether. Um, and we are happy to see it there, and we're happy to do it, and we're happy to see the Senate take up his nomination, uh, hopefully as, as quickly as this fall, um, so that the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which has been um, without a leader for the longest time uh, in history, um, usually a president has an appointed leader certainly sooner than more than a year into his administration. So we're happy to see that happen. And um, we're going to continue to monitor it and, uh, and keep you informed on where that goes as well. Also coming from the Office of Science and Technology Policy is the FY 2020 Administration Research and Development Budget Priorities. Um, this is a memo that comes from, um, it would come from the director, which as we just talked about, doesn't exist yet. It came from uh, Mick Mulvaney, who is the director of OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, and certainly the deputy assistant to the president, um, Michael Kratzios, who is currently the de facto head of OSTP, listing the priorities of where the administration would like to see agencies that fund science focusing on. So this is um, really just kind of bold strokes in terms of the direction um, R&D priorities for the administration. Um, I'm happy to report that one of those priorities is American medical innovation in which the administration specifically calls on federally funded research and development to continue to support efforts to combat the opioid crisis, contain infectious diseases, and confront other public health threats. So that's a good thing. Um, also, the memo does highlight the importance of federally funded basic research and the role that basic research plays when partnered with private dollars and development dollars. So um, we appreciate that we're seeing that. Again, these are bold strokes. This is a, a, a very broad policy statement. Um, perhaps with the addition of Dr. Drogmeyer in the future, we'll get a more specific um, and get into some deeper details on where the administration would like to see American science and innovation going. Um, again, um, this is not very different from the same memorando that went out a year ago um, to the federal agencies. So uh, we're not seeing a very big difference in administrative priorities. We'll take it. We will go forward with this. But it's important to note that even with a document like this last year, the president in his budget still did propose cuts to a lot of federally funded science agencies. So um, how you square that circle is difficult. Uh, thankfully, Congress has been a wonderful backstop and has been providing um, 
federal agencies that support science with the appropriations that they need, um, or at least continuing to grow budgets at the NIH, the NSF, the Department of Energy, a lot of different agencies. So we're going to continue to monitor this, but uh, it is just one of those things that we should let you know exists, um, and we'll have a link to it in our blog so that you can read it as well. So, And finally, I wanted to point out that for the first time, Congress is beginning to pay attention and have a reaction to the National Academy's report on sexual harassment of women, the climate, culture, and consequences in academic sciences, engineering, and medicine. And that's a report that came out earlier this summer. Senator Patty Murray was joined by Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro in writing a letter to Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, to express deep concern regarding harassment in the workplace to obtain, and to obtain information on how the NIH is working to address the issue both within the agency and in research facilities that receive NIH funding. This is obviously a direct relation to um, the findings of that report, the need for a change in the scientific culture. Um, which has for far too long looked the other way at sexual harassment issues inside of the laboratory, um, and um, there's a need to change that. So um, we'll have a link to the letter, uh, which is lengthy, and in which uh, Senator Murray and Congressman DeLauro um, make specific requests looking for information on the agency's harassment policy, data regarding the total number of harassment settlements at the NIH over the past several fiscal years, as well as requests to talk about how the NIH is compliant with Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights, which would look at how uh, and whether or not NIH applicants for funding have um, assured their compliance with the OCR rules, um, have there been anyone that's been deemed um, out of compliance, um, and how the NIH has acted in those instances. So. Um, both Senator Murray and Representative DeLauro wanted very quick responses to these questions, um, a matter of weeks from when they submitted the letter, which shows that they are very serious and very concerned about this issue. And um, we're happy to see this. We're happy to see congressional action being taken here, because one thing that we've noted is that while the National Science Foundation has been aggressively reviewing their policies to ensure that the NSF is supporting a culture which does not support harassment and which allows people who are being harassed um, the ability to report that harassment and for the NSF to take steps to remove harassers from those that are funded by the agency. The NIH has seemed slower in response to this issue, um, and um, I think that their slowness is going to have to change. I think they're going to have to respond quickly um, and seriously about this, and we're happy to see that. Um, this is a really critically important issue, and actually it's an issue that we're going to be taking and focusing attention on um, and interviewing some experts in our next podcast. So stay tuned for that because we do want to do a deeper dive on the issue and get into some of the topics um, that really need to be addressed and need to be put out there. So, um, but important to address the fact that uh, Senator Murray and uh, Representative DeLauro um, are really pushing hard and aggressively for the NIH to respond and to be held accountable in this issue. So worth monitoring to be sure. Um, those are the updates of what's happening here in Washington right now. Uh, we're going to take a break. And on the other side of the break, I'm going to have our interview with Rush Holt. So thank you for listening. This is Pipettes and Politics, and we'll be right back. Like this, but want more? 
why not visit the ASBMB Policy Blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Pipettes in Politics. This is Ben Korb, uh, Public Affairs Director for ASBNB, and I'm honored to have with me Rush Holt, the President and CEO of AAAS and former member of Congress. Rush, thank you for joining me. Good to be with you. I like your title. Oh, thank Pipettes you. Pipettes in Politics. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> um, so, what I wanted to discuss with you is we're seeing, and Science Magazine has been covering it, the increase in scientists that are running for political office, particularly running for Congress. And what we're seeing is, particularly as the primary season is now dying down, um, I think maybe the scientists that ran for office didn't have the experience they were looking for. Um, many didn't win in their primary. And I wanted to have a discussion on kind of your path to go from Princeton to Capitol Hill, um, what you thought the skills that you brought to the table were, and what you think maybe a scientist who's interested in going into public life should be considering and, and kind of the direction that that goes in. So maybe to start things off with, how did you go from um, the director of the Princeton Plasma Lab, I might be not getting that title correct. Assistant director, actually, yes. Um, to, you know, representative of the, of New, Jer in New Jersey. Yeah. Well, uh, let me kind of set, set the scene. I, I first ran for office uh, in 1996. Um, I had never been elected to anything other than student government, um, you know, at the university level um, before. Um, but I had always been interested in politics. I had always followed politics. I had worked on people's campaigns. Um, so I came at politics and public life differently than most of my colleagues. Most of my colleagues in physics and I think in the other sciences felt that going public was not just an extracurricular activity, it was really a contrary activity, that it was contrary to doing good science, um, that uh, maintaining a, um, uh, the, the right uh, perspective toward evidence and science meant you, you should not, you cannot go public. Um, that's changed over the years, but very slowly. Um, and now we're at the point where, you know, hundreds of thousands of scientists march for science in the streets. Um, uh, th by now, thousands of scientists have taken part in the year-long fellowship that AAAS runs called the Science and Technology Policy Fellows that places PhD level scientists in all three branches of the government for a year or two. Um, and scientists are writing op-eds and doing other things. Still it's a minority of people who do that. Um, and I grew up with my, well my mother was both a, uh, a, a college level teacher in biology and also a politician. My father was a politician. So from my earliest memories, I've been interested in how the world 
works, that's science, and how people get along, that's politics. And I never saw any incompatibility between them. Okay. Most of my colleagues have seen them as, as not just different, but incompatible. Um, so when there was an open seat for Congress, and I was working at the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory um, in 1996, I thought I'd run. Uh, I lost. Um, but uh, I didn't think that this was such a crazy idea, that this was somehow uh, putting my scientific credentials in question. Years before, in the early 80s, I'd been a AAAS uh, congressional fellow as part of this Science and Technology Poli Policy Fellows Program, sponsored by the American Physical Society. Uh, that was a great experience. I worked on Capitol year, Hill for a year. I worked for an individual member of Congress, uh, not a committee. I learned a lot about the congressional procedure. I learned a lot about congressional politics. Um, and to some extent, that helped prepare me to run for office, but not so much in the nuts and bolts of running for office, but it just helped me understand that politics is honorable, through politics you can help people, uh, and that it's a worthwhile thing to do. So I didn't have to overcome this psychological hurdle. Sure. Um, do, you, do you think that, um, do you think that scientists have a, ten and I don't think it's, I don't think it's just true of scientists, but do you think that advocates have a tendency to think that politics is like this hobby horse thing that you can jump into and all of a sudden be great at and not understand kind of the, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but the professional, like politics is a having a career in, in politics and in public service. It's more than just the thing that you jump into on the weekends or the letters that you write when you're upset, but there's there's a lot more to it. And do you well, think that people yeah, I mean, don't... You, you certainly can, and I would argue should, jump in and out of politics. I mean, I, I think everybody actually has some obligation to be involved in public life. Um, and as scientists who have particular expertise and facility with technical issues and, and technical arguments, there's an even greater responsibility to do some. Now, that could be um, uh, just a little bit here and there, you know, uh, volunteering with city council members or working on political campaigns or uh, uh, visiting Capitol Hill to talk about Science, And by the way, I would say not just to talk about your individual work, but to talk about what science means for people. Um, so there's an obligation to do some of that. Uh, but to run for office um, is hard. I mean, it is really hard. A lot of people think that members of Congress are dumb. By and large, they're not. There are a few that, you know, aren't, 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 aren't so great. But it's interesting they thought because I was a scientist, I must be smarter than everybody in Congress. Believe me, that's not true. <laughs> Believe me, that's not true. There are very smart people. To be successful in politics, in electoral politics, um, unless you're really lucky, you've got to be really good. Now you've also got to be a little bit lucky, and I certainly was. Um, but um, it's hard work, and it is intellectually I would say as harder than physics. 
it's also psychologically harder than anything I ever did. I mean, to be out there, you don't just have competitors. You have people who are trying to undo you. Yeah. Uh, that's psychologically hard. Right. And uh, physically, it's hard. I mean, this was 16-hour days Every day without, without end. Right. Um, and it, so it is... Um, it's not something you do, you undertake casually. Right. Um, when This year, you're right, a lot of people with science backgrounds or medical backgrounds or, or technical backgrounds uh, have been running for office, uh, a number of them running for Congress. They've called me up because I have some success in that, in that line. And uh, I always tell them, um, you know, run as if you're going to win because that's what the constituents and the voters will value and run with the expectation you'll lose because you probably will. Okay. I mean, you know, uh, it's this is not uh, a, a high yield profession. I mean, most people lose. There are far more losing candidates than winners. Right. You know, in every primary, there's only one person who comes out on top in most of the state systems. Um, and then in the general election, only one person who can, and there are people who fall by the wayside, uh, who never make it to the election, uh, never put together a successful campaign, uh, lose in the primary, <clears throat> and so forth. I lost in the primary when I first ran. Two years later, I ran again. I thought maybe I'd gotten it out of my system. <laughs> but two years later, I realized, <clears throat> excuse me, I realized that all the friends that I had made uh, were still with me. Okay. And so I just had to get a few more to have a majority. Um, and uh, it was a, um, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky, but it was also uh, really hard work and something that, that you had to think about constantly. What do you think is a, a skill set that you found particularly useful bringing from the laboratory to your political career and then on the other side what's something that you a skill that you learned in politics that you're finding useful now kind of back involved with the scientific community yeah probably nothing from the laboratory uh, helped me in the run for for congress nothing. oh you know one of the things i always tell physics students is physics and this is true with many sciences um helps you frame problems, figure out what it will take to solve a problem. That's good for being a public servant, for making policy, for making legislation. But the political part of that, the campaigning part of that, that's all about people. It's remembering names. Now, I was never particularly good at remembering names and faces, but I worked at it until I became good at it. Um, it's all about uh, dividing up the, the, the district into constituencies. I mean, what are, the, what are the different groups that you can reach out to? How can you put together a coalition that adds up to 50 plus, you know, 50.1 percent? Right. Um, and how are you going to approach them? Uh, and, you know, in my case, it was um, environmentalists and people who care about women's health and women's issues and scientists, but scientists, the people who vote on the basis of science are a sliver of the, yeah. of the population. Right. Um, 
so the ability to analyze problems uh, that I would learn in physics isn't much help. Um, certainly in physics, the way it's practiced in most laboratories and most institutes, um, interpersonal skills are not valued. Um, so, uh, you know, remembering, okay, now, gee, who's the real estate agent in that town? And who's the banker in this other town? And who's the school superintendent in this other town? And what are they interested in? You know, that's not something you, you ever practice in science, but it's something you got to know if you're going to be successful um, as, a, as an elected uh, uh, in an election. And what about from Capitol Hill? What is there something that you learned from that experience that you find yourself applying back sure, with science? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, everybody should have at least a, uh, a, a, a rough understanding of how laws are made, how policy is made. If you're dependent on public funding for your research, which is most scientists, you really ought to know where it comes from and why it's worth uh, the public supporting your work. Um, and uh, so that you can always keep that in mind. Um, and the, um, so uh, I, I come back from Capitol Hill with an even broader idea of what's the importance of science, what's the relevance of science that I had when I first ran for office. I had a broader than most, I think, idea of, of, of what science means. I mean, yeah. kind of it's, you know, it does not mean a collection of established facts. It means a way of asking questions so they can be answered empirically and verifiably. And it's relevant because this way of approaching things gives you the best the most reliable knowledge of how things are. And if you want to make any public decisions, you should start with the most reliable understanding of how things are. And that's what science is. So it's not the facts that it gives you, it's not even the process as practiced by a scientist, but a recognition that this way of thinking helps us understand how things are. And that is invaluable for a non-scientist as well as a scientist. And most non-scientists don't get it. Yeah. They think, well, what does evidence mean to me? Evidence is something for, for, for scientists yeah. or, or a court. Right. We have to find a way as scientists to reacquaint people that I think maybe they, an idea that they had many decades ago that public decisions should be made on the basis of evidence, that evidence should be the, the, the arbiter of, of what's uh, of, of, um, of public uh, discussions and public debates. Um, and people have sort of forgotten that. When you were on the Hill, were you pigeonholed by your colleagues as the science guy? So yeah, other yeah. members of Congress, if they had any, you know, they just came to you because you're the guy who knows about science. I mean, automatically, he should be on the science committee. Like, that, were those the sorts of things well, you had Well, as done? I said, they thought I was smart because I was a scientist and I must be the smartest guy in Congress. And that's not, that was never true. Um, also, uh, 
there's a uh, there's a uh, an anecdote when in 2001 this terrorist sent uh, anthrax spores through the mail. Um, you know, some postal workers died. Um, uh, offices on Capitol Hill were contaminated by these tiny but deadly spores. Uh, my colleagues came to me and said, well, you're a scientist. You must understand about anthrax. And they were saying two things. They're saying a scientist is a scientist is a scientist. Scientists know facts. They know how anthrax behaves. They know how to treat it, how to prevent it, uh, and right. so forth. And, of course, you know, I joke, I scratch my head wondering where in the physics curriculum I yeah, missed the part about, bac- about bacillus anthracis. But the other thing that they were saying to me when they came to me was, and I'm not a scientist, I can't possibly do this, so I'm coming to you. Well, they could look up a journal, they could look up an article in the New England Journal of Medicine just as easily as I could to find out, okay, so what antibiotics does anthrax respond to? How do you uh, uh, deactivate anthrax spores? Uh, You know, are they susceptible to ultraviolet light or something? But as smart as they are, they would say, well, I can't do that because that's science. Science is for scientists. Sure. So there's no question. They set aside scientists from non-scientists, and most of them think that they have been told over and over again, don't mess with science. Don't try this at home. Yeah. You're not a scientist. And that distance between scientists and legislators and scientists and you know non-scientists is... Uh, a dangerous, a dangerous chasm there, because it leaves eighty percent of the population thinking that they can't possibly understand science, they can't possibly make any decisions based about on science, that they will reject expertise if if their opinion today differs from what the experts say, and it leaves them um, uh, distrustful of expertise, and they neglect evidence. And then, um, since we're getting short on time, my last yeah. question for you. Um, how great of a job is it to be a member of Congress? Is it this really great, wake up every day invigorated because you're helping people kind of job? Or is it a job like we all have, where there are some days where you wake up and you're like, well, goodness, this is going to be a It was the day. first for me. I mean, I think every day at the end of the day, I had a sense of having helped somebody. Yeah. Now, sometimes it was in ones and twos. You know, helping a constituent with this or a constituent with that. Sometimes it was, you know, making a tweak in legislation that will, you know, make things better for a lot of people. Um, uh, So I think just about every day. Um, That doesn't mean it wasn't a grind. I mean, it was very satisfying. Um, I decided to leave after 16 years not because I couldn't stand it or because... um, that I was worn out, it was that it's not meant to be a lifetime job. And I came in, I was the first one in my party to have won in that district. Um, And I worked that district really hard. So after 16 years, as sure as anything is in politics, uh, I could have been reelected. But I thought the time had come. And uh, I thought, you know, I should turn it over to somebody else. I wanted to leave on my own terms rather than dying in office or being voted out. Or, um, uh, and I also wanted to leave when I could still do something else. I didn't want that to be my last chapter. And um, 
I, I didn't know that I would be able to uh, become CEO of AAAS. I'd been a member of AAAS for decades, sure. a regular reader of Science Magazine. Um, I'd been a AAAS congressional fellow, fellow for a year back in the early 80s. Um, so I knew AAAS well, and, and when, the, the, uh, when the chair of the board here uh, called to ask whether I'd be interested, I jumped at it. Sure. Um, and it's a great organization, you know, 170 years of doing really important things and really high quality, um, uh, really high quality work. Uh, so I'm, I'm really proud of that. Um, you know, our journals are great. By the way, our journal science and our other research journals are under the direction of editor-in-chief uh, Jeremy Berg, right. a former president, if I'm ASB not mistaken, of ASBMB. And uh, so uh, when I left Congress, I didn't know what I was going to do, but there again, I lucked out. Uh, and AAAS is a great organization. It's a great place to be. Great. And, uh, and we lucked out by you having uh, time in your calendar to, to sit down and talk with me, and I appreciate that, and I'm sure our listeners will. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Happy to do it. No problem. This is uh, Pipettes and Politics, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Pipe Bets and Politics. I want to thank Rush Holt for his time in that really insightful interview. I thought he really gave some great perspectives on what it was like to transition from the lab to elected office and then to um, one of the world's largest scientific societies. So, Rush, thank you for that. Um, that's going to do it for this week's episode. I do want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to join ASBMB in our effort to meet with elected representatives during the August recess period. If you'd like more information on how to do that, you can visit www.org slash augustadvocacy. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks. So I want to thank you for listening. This has been Pipettes and Politics.